the 1960s would have never been the same without her. Uh, those are the words of pop culture and fashion icon Twiggy. Uh, it's a tribute to the late British designer Dame Mary Quant, who died in the, in the UK this week, aged 93. Quant defined the uniform of, of the post-war social revolution. She broke with conventions and raised hemlines in the process. Of course, she invented the miniskirt. In 2021, uh, a retrospective exhibition of her life and work from London's Victoria and Albert Museum, it travelled to well, the Bendigo Art Gallery in regional Victoria. And in memory uh, of Dame Mary's life and work, we thought we would revisit a conversation about that exhibition with Stephanie Wood, fashion historian and curator at the V&A. Stephanie, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. That time in in London, and we're going back to sort of 1955, it wasn't much fun, was it? No, it's interesting. Um, I guess if you think back to that time, it's very gloomy. Um, London was still very much recovering from the war. Food rationing is in place until 1954. Um, you know, Mary talks about it herself uh, in her own autobiography as a, a London being a bit of a bomb site um, where the only thing that thrived was the Budlia. So you get this sense of drabness and austerity. But it's also a time uh, that they're moving into of optimism mm. and there's growing social mobility for young people people, there's growing affluence, uh, there's further education, there's a lot more women entering the workforce, and you get this beginnings of a youth culture. So um, it's a really exciting time. There's the beginnings of like shopping becoming this leisure activity and this new age of consumerism, advertising, graphic design. Um, So yeah, it's a really exciting time for her to kind of build her brand and help to build this new identity for post-war. And into that extraordinary moment of sort of social tension, she she opens up in in Kings Road in Chelsea. What would what was she what was she selling then? What what was that shop? So um, her early kind of famous bazaar boutique, she opened up in 1955 on the Kings Road. Um, in the very early days, uh, she was kind of bringing things in. She was kind of raiding wholesale. Um, sellers and going to art schools to try and get really interesting things to sell there. So it was a a really interesting kind of bazaar of lots of different things. But she was really struggling to find things that she wanted to wear herself as a young female designer. So she then started designing herself and it was just instantly successful, kind of flying off the racks. Um, Yeah, so it was was an instant success. Um, And I think the reason why it was so successful is because she really captured... Uh, that gap between kind of childhood and womanhood um, that really wasn't being catered for at that time. You know, there was nothing for the for the teenager to wear. What was the thing she did? I mean, what what was her sort of breakthrough thought in design, in in fabric, in look, in colour, in feel? Well, I think there's there's a number of things that you can kind of take for it. I think uh, the big thing for her that kind of set her designs apart was that they were a lot easier to wear. If you think about 50s fashion, it's it's relatively prescriptive. You know, there's a lot of rules around how you should dress for certain occasions, for day wear, gloves and hats for evening wear, um, a lot of kind of hobbled skirts and restrictive underwear and garments. And she's kind of breaking free from that and saying, no, we should be wearing these uh, garments that 
we want to wear. It's a much more relaxed approach to fashion, mm. you know, wearing a dress for the day and then putting on some heels and wearing it for the evening, breaking down those kind of rules within fashion that very much existed up until that point. And starting from the underwear on up. Exactly. I think one of the most interesting things that people don't necessarily know is that it wasn't just fashion that she was selling. You could buy, by the time you got to the 1960s, literally everything. You could buy everything from the underwear, the tights, the shoes, the cosmetics, uh, the dresses. And then certainly when you get into the 70s, you know, she's moving into homeware. You can buy your own Mary Quant <laughs> little dolls. Like it's an entire lifestyle brand that you buy into. <laughs> I'm just imagining her with access to Instagram and it's it's it's, it's a world dominating possibility. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, materials were fundamental in this. I mean, what sort of new materials was she introducing to to give this liberty, this flexibility? Well, two of her favourite ones that she absolutely adored, um, the first one that she comes back to again and again, she initially starts using it in 1963 with her Ginger Group mass-produced collection, is um, this new type of uh, heat-bonded wool jersey, uh, which was a complete revelation to her. You know, up until that point, it was being used for underwear and maybe for sportswear like rugby and and football tops. Hmm. But for her, she adored it. It was this very kind of smooth, fluid qualities that it had that was perfect for her signature sporty mini dresses. Um, and then the other one that she adored, um, which was, she was experimenting with from 1963, was PVC, which up until that point had not been used in fashion. It was a complete revelation. And, um, you know, it's a gorgeous fabric, but it's also very, very difficult to work with. But she loved it because it was kind of this, she described it as this super shiny, man-made stuff and it's shrieking colors and I think the reason why she loved it and why it kind of caught people's imagination was because it was this kind of 60s fascination with technology in the space age so it kind of embodied all of that feeling at the time and colors I mean what, what was her palette I mean, certainly her earlier designs are slightly more muted in colour. I mean, the specific colour choices that she comes back to again, like strange colours like putty, which is kind of a beige colour, prune, uh, a kind of muted purple <laughs> colour, um, brown, Have you got orange. that in prune is something that no one's ever asked. <laughs> Exactly. But it's interesting, when she moves into the late 60s, it's also like these very kind of technical blood colours, um, which also kind of obviously takes into account all of those developments with dyes and technology and fabrics that could be dyed in these very bright colours. So it becomes kind of pop and technicolour. She must have had a great curiosity. I mean, how did she get tapped into that sort of that technological side of, of fabric and of colour? Yeah, she had a really great understanding of it and she had really great um, relationships uh, with lots of textile manufacturers. Um, yeah, and there was a huge base for textile manufacturing um, throughout the UK. So she worked very closely with them. And actually, the thing that's interesting is, is that she's pushing them kind of beyond their boundaries. They were very used to producing things in specific colours. And she's kind of pushing them to create these completely different colours that just weren't really seen before. And it's the same with the cosmetics, actually. I think the kind of cosmetics of the UK in particular, actually, I'd say, no, most of the world had gotten very stuck. Yep. And she was really pushing like white nail varnish, black nail varnish, uh, completely different colours that just weren't produced beforehand. I mean, this is another extraordinary thing about this moment. This is here's Mary Quant dealing with uh, a local British um, manufacturing chain here. You know, she's not not sending the stuff off to China for production. <laughs> this is all being done uh, within the UK. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting time because the, there's so many different manufacturing centers which just don't exist anymore in the UK. And certainly when you get to the 1970s, there's a lot of offshoring that goes on. Mm. But up until that point, you know, she's she's working with um, factories who produce like tights and underwear in Nottinghamshire. She's working with wool manufacturers up in the north of England and the west of England. It's like this amazing hub of um, industry that's happening in the UK at the time. Amazing energy. Uh, the miniskirt, did she invent that? Oh, it's the age-old question, isn't it? <laughs> Who invented it? <laughs> that, that idea of less is more. <laughs> Absolutely. No, she talks about it very openly and says that she was really looking to what women and girls were already wearing on the streets. But it's interesting, I think, the reason why she becomes the face of the miniskirt and why she becomes known as the inventor of the miniskirt is because she's this young female designer and, as we've said, she's the face of the brand. So people all around the world are seeing images of her wearing increasingly increasingly shorter skirts and so she kind of becomes associated with it but what we definitely can say she maybe didn't invent it but she popularized it <laughs> and if you look at any press during that time she's everywhere wearing it and promoting it but this this buys in now into, into a sort of a subtext of empowerment i mean from those hobbled skirts here's that rising hemline that lets a woman walk yeah absolutely and i think that was the real driving force for her it was about um a freedom of movement. You can run for a, a bus, you can go out dancing <laughs> in the evening. It's not about restricting women. But I think the reason why it was so popular with uh, many young women at the time in the mid-60s is it kind of transcends fashion, the miniskirt. It becomes this real symbol of freedom and empowerment and kind of a refusal to conform to the very stifling rules of the mother's generation. And obviously, if we look at the kind of cultural and social impacts of what was happening at that time, I think it, it becomes a very visual symbol of a lot of these social and cultural freedoms that women are kind of fighting for and gradually being experienced at the time. Yes, it's, it's an amazing example of, yes, yeah, social change in a kind of political statement. Well, it is revolutionary too, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you look at the, you know, the preceding context to this, this moment in, in the late 50s, 60s, where everything changes. I mean, it is abrupt. It is a, a complete disconnection from what went before. I speak to a lot of people who find it really insane that the miniskirt, it was so shocking. Just completely take it for granted because it's such an accepted part of fashion today. But there was a real pushback against it, and particularly if you were outside of the fashion centres like London. I spoke to many women who, you know, were told that they weren't respectable and it wasn't acceptable for them to wear skirts that that short. One woman in particular who sold Mary Quant cosmetics and she she wore um, the first ever kind of Mary Quant um cosmetics consultant outfit that was designed by Mary. She was asked, asked to leave one department store in the north of England in <laughs> 1966 because it was apparently so disrespectful to wear a miniskirt. Um, she was seen as a very bad influence. So, yeah, it was controversial. It was revolutionary. So that's interesting. I, I, there was a uniform for the, the representatives of the brand. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the very clever things, I think, that Mary kind of encompassed early on, this idea of branding everything. Hmm. So, yeah, everything has this amazing Daisy logo that becomes synonymous with the brand. There's uniforms and there's it's not just the kind of revolutions with the cosmetics, but also the kind of retail experience, how you are buying these products. So, yeah. Um, it's interesting, if you talk to the cosmetics consultants, um, there's an amazing lady, Joy Devon and Burton, who was 
kind of the head of that whole crew. And um, she said that the traditional women who saw cosmetics in the department stores, she described them as dragon ladies, like much older, <laughs> very severe. But the cosmetics that um, consultants for Quant, they were very young, they were approachable, and they were they were the same kind of age as the women that they were promoting to. So it was complete revelation. I'm getting visions of Mrs. Slocum from Are You Being Served, sort of flashing before <laughs> <laughs> that, that thing of the daisy too. I mean, this is this is so canny. You know, here we are at this moment of flower power, uh, of, of of the the, the blossoming of sixties culture, and and Mary Quant has a real real sense a real sense for sort of going to the core of that. Absolutely, yeah. And the daisy, I mean, you think about, you know, logos are kind of fundamental to branding and marketing today. But back then, you know, it's a very great early example of a logo that was used on every single product. This um, just became synonymous with the brand. So if you wanted to buy any product and you saw that daisy anywhere in a department store, you'd know that was Mary Kwan. It's a very forward-thinking way of approaching branding and marketing. She was, of course, in partnership with her her husband business-wise, and they were a great team. Yeah, um, it was actually three of them who set up the business. And I think um, they all came with their own individual kind of strengths. Mary herself was this very creative visionary. Um, Her partner, her husband, Alexander Plunkett-Green, he was the kind of business brains behind the operation, the marketeer. And then there was a third partner, Archie McNair, who um, was trained as a lawyer. And he he was kind of running the operation and the business side of it. And it was their three kind of strengths that came together. which ultimately helped them survive and thrive when many other fashion brands went bust during that time. I'm imagining the sort of the filming of this story in sort of cool Britannia kind of mode. Michael Caine is one of them. (laughs) My casting has run out at that point. One of the really interesting things about the exhibition, you you organised a a wonderful social media campaign to attract stuff to it. We Want Quant was your call. Tell us about that. Yeah, so We Want Quant was our public call-out where, I mean, we knew from the very beginning of putting on this exhibition that we wanted to tell the broader kind of social impact of how Quant was um, impacting women's lives during that time. And we wanted to speak to many of those women. So we did this public call out, not just to find garments, but also to speak to those women in particular. And it was incredible. We were um, completely overwhelmed. We didn't realize how big it was going to be. We got about a thousand women who got in touch with us. Wow. And they sent photographs and they shared their memories and their stories of, of what Quant meant to them. So it completely transformed the exhibition. And that kind of biographical narrative of those women's stories is very much at the heart of the exhibition. Is there a shorthand for, for how those women held that memory, what, what, what Mary Quant meant to them? I think for a lot of them, she was a real role model um, and she kind of gave them this new empowered sense of style. Um, yeah, that was the main thing that came across. And I think uh, for many of these women, it was a, a fundamental time in their lives. It was, you know, seminal years and a lot of mm. these garments that they bought and that they cherished up until now, until they were in the exhibition, were kind of very formative moments in their, their lives. So you see lots of photographs of them with their children at christenings, on their wedding days, wearing Mary Quant dresses. There's a real kind of reverence for her and a real, it's still very much today, a lot of love for Mary. 
something in the exhibition which is your particular favourite of yours? One of my absolute favourites, we've got this gorgeous um, dress from 1963, which is so cool and ahead of its time. It's basically this um, really gorgeous um, wool grey dress. But the reason why it's so interesting for me is that it incorporates a waistcoat and a tie. So it looks like a, <laughs> a man's suit, but it's completely transformed into this really progressive um, dress for a woman. And it's a really good example of Mary's kind of pushing of gender boundaries within fashion and really challenging them. And it's just really ahead of its time. Just that expression, ahead of its time, and, and, and that speaks to an attitude, I mean, a, a courage on, on the part of the wearer for someone who isn't that designer, who isn't, you know, invested in that project to, to take this thing off the rack, to take that home and wear it and be that person out there ahead of their time. That's, that's an amazing and wonderful thing. Absolutely. And there's a real cult around um, Mary Quant because she talks about it herself, that it's not just about a way of dressing, it's about a way of living. And I think if you speak to a lot of the women who wore these garments, it's about buying into that. It's, mm. um, yeah, it's a way of kind of presenting yourself and a way of feeling about yourself more than anything else. Stephanie, thank you. Wonderful thing. Uh, congratulations on the show. Thank you so much. That was Stephanie Wood, fashion historian, curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum, who spoke to us in 2021 about the exhibition Mary Quant, Fashion Revolutionary. To mark the, the sad parting of British fashion designer Dame Mary Quant, who died in the UK this week, aged 93. This is Blueprint for Living. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.